I have got a very positive attitude towards the future. And we saw this during the referendum where the young voters were all positively disposed to, you know, Aboriginal trusted on the people and understanding why we need to have a voice. Unfortunately, some of our older cohort who don't experience racism themselves can't really appreciate what it means to be either vilified or discriminated against. This is Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman and that's Professor Tom Kalmer. For decades, Tom Kalmer has been a force for good in Australia. He has been a diplomat, an anti-smoking campaigner, an advisor to several governments, and he also co-authored the proposed model for the voice to parliament. He's the 2023 Senior Australian of the Year, a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia, and the first Aboriginal man appointed Chancellor of any Australian university. And all the while, he has remained a tireless campaigner for justice, better health, education and equality for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We wanted to sit down with Tom Kalmer to talk about his life's work, what he makes of it now, the forces that shaped him, where he thinks Australia is now and what he hopes for the future. We met two weeks after the voice referendum and within days of Tom arriving home to Canberra from a quick trip to the US. Tom goes back almost every six weeks to Darwin from where he now lives in Canberra. Kungarukan on my mother's side and, and I was brought up on her country, which is stretches from Adelaide River down through Batchelor, Litchfield National Park, down to uh, where the salt water and the fresh water meet on Darwin River, which is Berry Springs. That's a woman's site. I grew up on, on mum's country till I was three and we moved to Darwin. Dad is Iwaja, which is on the Coburg Peninsula, uh, just north of Kakadu. Do you still feel connected to that country? Very much so. Still visit country wherever I can, uh, although business often takes me away uh, from being able to do that. But it's great to be back there, you know, and to catch up with family and also to reconnect with country. How do you think that has influenced you, that connection to country? I think it's, you know, having the relationship with country and culture and a little bit of language, although I'm, I'm not proficient at all in that, you know, over the passage of time, we've now seen a lot of our elders pass on. Um, and so, you know, we've got a different generation coming through. But there's still the connection to, to country and to culture that um, I think is very important. And I find that, you know, I see myself as very fortunate because I've been able to do that, whereas many people um, across the nation have been moved off their land, away from their country, haven't been able to practice culture or language. And um, people are still going back and re-establishing connections with, with country. So being grounded in what we call country, our own traditional lands, is, is very important. He credits his parents for giving him stability and says his father's life was a strong influence on the career path he took. And my father had to look after his, his mother and his sisters in growing up. They were very poor and so he had to leave school early to go and work to provide for the family and so it's always been that association with family and dad's influence um the importance of education to him was paramount uh, and we all went through and had a good education his philosophy was you get a good education position yourself and then help others he started off as a, a road worker patching roads and progressed through self-education up to becoming a, a senior supervisor and he employed about 80, 80 people 
half Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the other half non-Indigenous Australians, and he always strove to be able to make sure that everybody was treated equally and fairly and, you know, looking at, at it from a social justice lens. When I did um, work experience with him and also working within the public sector, there's always a very positive, you know, attitude towards uh, my father and the way he conducted his business, and I guess that's what rubbed off. So that's had a, a lot of influence over the way that, that I've conducted my life and and our children are the, are the same and, and family. So as we've been able to progress through stable employment and having education opportunities, we've all been able to give back to the community. So it all came from your dad? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd credit a lot to dad and to mum. Mum was a homemaker, so she was able to, you know, make sure that we did our homework and that was always one of the things. You know, you can't go out and play until you've done your homework. So, you know, it's, it's a discipline that we try to practice with our kids as they went up. And, you know, fortunately, they've all now completed university. You know, we've all been able to uh, give back. I did see one comment where you made yourself sound like you are a bit of a rat bag when you were young and you didn't focus on your studies. Yeah. Well, I was never really good. There was a lot of, a lot of other distractions in growing up in Darwin. Um, you know, which is a, a great place to grow up. And Dad always had the the philosophy, and I didn't appreciate this so much until I was much older and actually found his old checkbooks where at the end of every fortnight, you know, there were zero balances. And, and that's why we went out, and he always encouraged us to go fishing, supplementing our, our lifestyle through through the products we were able to harvest from the, the sea and also from hunting and, and um, you know, sharing any excess with other family members. So, yeah, that, that that was a good distraction for me. So, yeah, I studied. I still did what I needed to do, but there were too many other distractions. So, But it's interesting because you've done so well academically since yeah. then. Yeah. You know, that's a really important um, observation because when people are given the opportunity, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, are given the opportunity, they will respond positively and we will see greater outcomes. And we see this all the time when uh, environments are culturally conducive, that people are in a safe place and given the opportunity to take on challenges, uh, they'll do it and do it very positively. He says there were a couple of turning points that made him want to focus on improving education and literacy outcomes for First Nations people in Australia. One was seeing how few kids from his community finished high school. Most dropped out at year 10 or 11, went on to employment and, and you know, another trades, which was also very important, and very few actually took the academic stream. And, and that was one of the, one of the turning points. The other was Christmas Day, 1974, when Cyclone Tracy ripped through his hometown. Darwin was pretty much destroyed and there were no tertiary education provisions available, not, not much choice anyhow. University places were only just opening up for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, so Tom went south to what was then known as the South Australian Institute of Technology and studied social work and community development. It was a national program, so we had... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from across the nation there. And I think that was the, really the turning point that allowed me to, to get a, a national perspective, which I hadn't really appreciated when I was in Darwin, but it also gave the opportunity to be in a supportive environment for education. It was also, a, it was a exclusively uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through this program, but it was an enclave within 
the School of Social Work. And in fact, that's where I met my wife. She was also a student way back in, in 77, 78. So. And you're still married all these still years married, later. Yep, still hanging in there. <laughs> and Tom, I understand that work that you did in Adelaide eventually spread. Yes, it did. You know, it was a great opportunity for me. And on returning to Darwin, by coincidence, I, I saw, you know, one of the, the senior professors out at the, the then Darwin Community College uh, was holding a public meeting to look at how they could get Aboriginal students into the Darwin Community College uh, as it had resurrected after the cyclone. Tom joined the college to help establish that program and within a year he was the coordinator and a lecturer. We started off in 1980 with uh, one course of 25 students and by the time I left in 1986 we had five full-time courses, a number of articulation programs and over 300 uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students enrolled. So, so it grew very quickly and um, it lasted uh, for quite a number of years until the decision was when it became a university to just make a, a provision for students to go straight into the various faculties. 25 years after that Darwin College program began, Professor Tom Kalmer, in his role as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, released the 2005 Social Justice Report. The report set out the terrible rates of preventable diseases and chronic health conditions among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, poor fetal and child health, high rates of smoking, cancer and diabetes and poor access to primary health care. It influenced the Close the Gap campaign, a collaboration of peak Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander as well as mainstream health bodies which lobbied governments to close the health and life expectancy gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians within a generation. It's a, a human right-based approach, and, and that is where you make people the centre and then everybody responds to that. It has a number of key features. One is that it's non-discriminatory, which is important, and the other is that it's what we call the, the principle of progressive realisation, where... Any initiative is in fact able to be monitored and reported against to make sure that we do progress. One of the key features of that is that there's what we call needs-based funding, that adequate funding goes in to be able to achieve the outcomes that we're trying to get. In 2007, Labor campaigned on a Closing the Gap initiative and implemented targets when they returned to power. One of the, the major failures of the Closing the Gap campaign has been the inability of government to hold a standard approach to what they're doing. So instability in Parliament has meant that the Closing the Gap initiative has waxed and waned. In fact, since the beginning of the, uh, when I first launched it in 2006, the Closing the Gap campaign, we've seen nine Prime Ministers in that same period up until now. You know, various ministers, uh, hundreds and hundreds of bureaucrats changing, and so we haven't had a consistent approach. Hopefully we're at a position now where, through the national agreement on closing the gap, that we will see a bit more stability and a bit bit more of an opportunity to realise what the main objectives of the of the report was. And, and you know, part of the progressive realisation principles is accountability, and that's why we're able to get the Prime Minister to report back at the opening of Parliament each year on what they've achieved uh, in the previous year. Unfortunately, it then becomes uh, an opportunity for the opposition to have a ping at the government 
And so it becomes a political football again. And so we, as the Close the Gap campaign, produce a shadow report which talks about, from our perspective, from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective, and also from the perspective of the the non-Indigenous health peak bodies and human rights groups of what needs to be achieved and what has been achieved. And essentially, my understanding is the idea is that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we want the same health outcomes as for the rest of the population. Exactly right. That's what health equality is about, and equity is the is the goal to, to be able to achieve that. Uh, equality is about saying that we should enjoy the same life uh, outcomes and health outcomes as the non-Indigenous population. But it is far, far from that at the moment. When I first launched the report, there was a 17-year life expectancy gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, whereas in other countries, the other developed countries that we often measure against, New Zealand, Canada and the US, the gap was only seven years. And so my whole question was, why is there such a profound gap here in Australia, a very rich country, and that needed to be addressed? People got a little offended because we said it should be non-discriminatory, and that's in part because the health systems themselves uh, weren't conducive to be able to support not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but minority people. So we've seen over the past decade plus a change in in the way that the health systems start to look at cultural competency, making sure that their services are, are non-discriminatory. Still a way to go, mind you, but um, we have seen improvements in that space. Is uh, the gap smaller now? The gap is smaller. You know, it, it's roughly about 10 years now in part because of improved health services, but equally because of a different formula used on the same data, which actually brought it down quite significantly. But anyhow, it is an improvement. Um, The important thing is that governments stay focused. And we had at one stage, you know, what we call a statement of intent in 2008, where the governments, all the governments of Australia, as well as the Commonwealth government, signed off that they would work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They would uh, have a comprehensive plan, strategy, they would fund it and so forth. Well, over the years, you know, change of government or change of approach. And that's been the hallmark of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs. And that's what, you know, we, we, we're still striving to achieve some consistency. Close the Gap continues to lobby the government of the day for better outcomes. In some ways, it's a prototype for what The Voice would have been, but the Close the Gap isn't funded by the government. Yet, it has made some strides towards self-determination for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It comes under now the the national agreement on closing the gap, and we have uh, quite a number of targets that, that are still there, but now the targets are being developed with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people rather than by government and imposed on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that's that's a significant change. And that's what we're trying to achieve out of the voice to make it a systemic uh, way of going about business. But of course, that didn't get up. I can hear the frustration in your voice there. But you have spent a lot of your life working on social justice issues for mm-hmm. First Nations people. So what turned you specifically towards that cause? Well, it's a bit, uh, you know, of what, what, um, you know, my father's influence again. And, you know, we can't undervalue, uh, social justice and, and empathy and inclusiveness being non-discriminatory and, 
and non-racist. And nowadays I talk a lot about people's unconscious bias, and that is that that people may not believe that they're, they're discriminatory or that they're racist, but they are, or what they practice is, and often it's through unconscious bias. It's how they've been influenced through social media or mainstream media, which which creates an attitude towards, you know, minority groups. And when you have politicians who help feed that uncertainty, um, you know, it, it's it's really disappointing. And I think there needs to be a big shake-up in, in the integrity and honesty of some politicians, and I've made that pretty clear post the referendum, so that, you know, they have a responsibility to feed accurate information, not misleading, not half-truth, and so forth to the population. And that goes the same for, for some of our media commentators, because all that does is feed the unconscious bias and people's attitudes do change. And so it, all of us need to address it. We've all got unconscious bias. It's an interesting point you're making there because the racism online, especially during mm. the lead up to the voice referendum, was frankly disgusting. Mm. I wonder how you reflect on that, especially given that you've got experience in the Human Rights Commission. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we've had a campaign within the Human Rights Commission. I still am actively uh, monitoring what goes on called Racism It Stops With Me. If we're not somebody who who perpetrates racism or promotes racism, then it will stop. And and it's incumbent on all of us to educate our, our future. I have got a very positive attitude towards the future. Through the work that we do at Reconciliation Australia, what many of the curriculums around Australia are doing with our, with our young kids, and we saw this during the referendum where the youth and uh, the, the young voters were all positively disposed to you know, Aboriginal trusted on the people and understanding why we need to have a voice because youth also become voiceless. So, you know, there is empathy there. And unfortunately, some of our older cohort who don't experience racism themselves can't really appreciate what it means to be either vilified or discriminated against. What did you make of the referendum result? Um, look, it's it very disappointing because from a, an ICO chair, Reconciliation Australia, and we, we have what we call the reconciliation barometer. It's a measure of the attitudes of the Australian population every two years. And we've seen, you know, probably for the last three barometers, a really positive attitude that the population has had. You know, and I think the key features are, you know, the bridge walks in 2000, where we had people walking for reconciliation. That lasted. And then we had the national apology in 2008 by Kevin Rudd when he was Prime Minister. And for the indignity and degradation thus inflicted on a proud people and a proud culture, we say sorry. That was an opportunity for the whole of the population to really understand a lot more about what the stolen generations meant, what the, the impacts of colonisation meant, and, and what really came home to people was when there was a national apology to the forgotten Australians, those non-Indigenous people who were brought over from the UK, supposedly as orphans, and then also incarcerated, and they experienced very similar issues to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as in being abused in, in many different forms, but also being put into indentured labour, not being sufficiently recognised. And so people could relate 
more and they felt maybe a bit more empathy and, and sympathy for the, the non-Indigenous people that it happened to, whereas they were being educated about the stolen generations, but, but maybe some of them, and, you know, we had politicians saying it was for their own good uh, and so forth, and, <laughs> and you know, and I still can't comprehend that, that sort of attitude, but, you know, that, that's out there. I'm only laughing because it's so ridiculous. It, when is, you... it is ridiculous. You know, and in more more recent times, when a politician saying that there's no such thing as intergenerational trauma and uh, transgenerational trauma, and that colonisation was only good because we got running water, and you know, and this is ridiculous because we don't have running water in all communities. They still suffer. We still suffer from intergenerational traumas. And if if it was the case that it wasn't an issue, why have we got a royal commission? looking at veterans and, and military people who have taken their own life because of the traumas that they've experienced. And we saw those traumas post the Vietnam War when our soldiers were not accepted back into society for a long time. You know, I've had people say, oh, you know, but we fought side by side. You know, we should all be treated equally. Yes, we all wish that was the case. But after World War One, World War Two, we had no soldier settlements for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They weren't given the land grants and support. They weren't even allowed to get into the RSLs. So let's not pretend that it was honky-dory and there's no issues out there. And I'm from a family of Jewish Holocaust survivors mm. and we know all too well that intergenerational trauma goes on and on it and does. on. Yeah. Tom, what about the referendum and reconciliation? Do you believe that reconciliation has been damaged by the referendum, or are you still hopeful that we can make change? You know, it has been a bit of a setback because we were so positively, and, you know, I mentioned the um, barometer, and, you know, that was showing the attitudes by Australians was very positive and supporting uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people having a greater say in our own affairs, supporting, you know, being recognised in the Constitution. And so, you know, I must say I, I went into the referendum very positive thinking that the Australian population understands but have since realised that they don't understand or they were very influenced by by social media and some of the other disinformation and there was plenty of disinformation out there. You know, one of the, one of the ones that, that still irks me is this whole notion of, you know, Aboriginal trusted on the people get $33 billion a year, so where's all the money going? And, you know, when you go and look at all the public records that are all open to the public to have a look at and disclosed, the majority of that $33 billion, less than half comes from the Commonwealth, the other proportion comes from the states and territories, but over 80% of that is for basic citizenship rights that all Australians are entitled to. So when we talk about discrimination, we have to ask ourselves, why is it only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have reporting against expenditure. No other population group gets it. And so the population of Australia is misled into believing that these are gifts and grants and free homes. Are you talking about things like Medicare that everyday oh, people are using? Medicare, childcare. When it, when it comes to the Commonwealth, and I feel very embarrassed about this, the Commonwealth supported places at universities that is open for everybody, but when an Aboriginal person accesses it, it's counted as a gift to Aboriginal people. Totally ridiculous. And, you know, the government needs to, to look at the way that they go about reporting on this. 
Tom, in October 2023, you were at the White House and you were there for a welcome ceremony for Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and you were singled out by President Joe Biden for a chat. Now, you're the only Aussie that he spoke to, and I can see the big smile on your face there, reportedly about First Nations business. Yes, I was. It was the the only person, Australian or otherwise, that he spoke with. Look, it was a a real honour. In part, it was a reminiscence that we'd met in 2016 when he was vice president and visited Australia and there was a a dinner at at the uh, Admiralty House in Sydney and Heather and I were were invited to that dinner. So we met um, Vice President Biden at the time. So we reminisced about that and he, he actually recalled and he said, oh yeah, the dinner in Sydney, which, you know, made me feel pretty good, uh, <laughs> that he remembered that. But we did talk about first, first nations businesses. At the time, I hadn't realized it because we were at that event, but he and the Prime Minister had actually put out a statement, both confirming their respective government's commitments to increasing, uh, the relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander businesses in Australia and also with the, the Native American businesses in the, in the States. It coincided with a, a round table that was taking place, uh, soon after. And I, I mentioned this to the president that I was going to the round table. And, uh, yeah, he, he again, uh, mentioned his, his support. And, uh, yeah, and I think it's going to be, you know, a great initiative as we, as we develop with AUKUS on board and we need to make sure that, you know, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander businesses also have a, you know, a bite at that little exercise in Australia. And so both parties have agreed to, to further trade missions between the two. And we will see a delegation of Native Americans coming down here in the new year uh, to talk about what they have on offer and what we have on offer. And I think it's a, a great opportunity. And I should say that when you look at the support that the Reconciliation Action Plan companies uh, provide to Aboriginal Trusted Honda people through procurement of their services, but also through the scholarships and other support that they provide, it shows that we are pretty, pretty good, you know, and I, I can understand that their commitment has been a long, long time coming and that's why they were so committed to supporting the Yes campaign for the referendum because they could see value in it. Despite the setbacks, when I asked Tom what his proudest achievement has been, Close the Gap is top of mind. That has a a long-term legacy that's going to address not only health, but also what we call the social determinants and cultural determinants of health. So it looks at education, employment, housing, uh, mental health issues, as well as physical health. So that's very significant. My time as Chancellor of University of Canberra, um, you know, I'm just seeing... 10 years as Chancellor and another five years prior to that on Council and what we've been able to achieve. And I guess from there is to know that in 2021 and 2022, for two consecutive years, we were recognised as the number one university in the world for addressing inequality. And that goes on all levels of inequality, not only Aboriginal trusted on the people, but gender equality, uh, addressing the needs of first in family, going to, to university, people with disabilities. So something we as Canberrians can be very proud of and, and the university. And he's not sitting back resting on his reputation. Tom is excited talking about his current project. It's an example of what can happen when First Nations communities have control of their own solutions. 
And, and I think the third thing would be a program that I've managed since 2010 with the Commonwealth Government called the Tackling Indigenous Smoking Program. And it's a, an initiative to talk to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about the benefits of not smoking. And why that's so good is that we've practised allowing the community in all the, the, the 37 to 40 communities where our teams are located, they work with the community to develop up the strategies and the messaging that's best going to have an impact on their community, which is what we try to achieve out of The Voice, is having a clear say in that um, in that domain. And so what we've seen is that a reduction of over 50% of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population smoking down to about 37%, uh, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal shift in, in, and you know, and ANU has in fact uh, done modelling which suggests that in that period about 50,000 people have either given up smoking or, or not taken it up and that saved about 23,000 lives. So it is a, a very, very significant, you know, health intervention program. We've also got to address vaping that, uh, is also causing major havoc for, for communities. But, you know, the government's responded very positively to that and, and we'll see some measures coming up in the coming year to address that through funding and also some regulatory controls on importation of vaping devices, etc. When I asked Tom Kalmer as the 2023 Senior Australian of the Year if he could get a message into the ears of young people, what would it be? This is what he said. Get involved, you know. You all have a part to play in democracy. Understand how we govern. Understand the mechanisms of how legislation gets through Parliament, the roles and responsibilities of Parliament. Understand your citizenship rights and also your human rights, what you are entitled to and what you should be demanding. But also, at the same time, understand who we are as a nation. And and I can say through the, the Narragunawali program at, through Reconciliation Australia that we're working across the curriculum, across the nation in all the curriculums to present an understanding of our history from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective. So we've started addressing truth-telling. So that's a really important one. And Tom had something to say to older people too where education has failed us and the work we still need to do. I'm on the Aged Care Council of Elders, which is a group of people from across Australia who are looking at uh, monitoring and working with the government on the implementation of the recommendations from the, the Royal Commission into Aged Care. So, you know, from the older person's perspective, I think what they need to do is also understand a lot more about our youth understand how they can uh, still contribute effectively to society and, and try and get a bit of an understanding about our history because too many older people were denied a good education about the history of Australia. It was very distorted when I went through, and I'm turning 70 in a couple of weeks' time. It was all about Captain Cook discovering Australia and forgetting about that 65, 70,000 years of, of prehistory you know, when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people survived on this on this continent. And, you know, to understand and to celebrate and really give life to the longest continuing surviving cultures in the world are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Nobody's ever going to pass that. But we're here, we were here, we will still be here into the future. So it's really important for all of us to understand that and to try and have some empathy and understanding about 
why Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, you know, want to get have a bit of say in, in the way that we're going about it. And, you know, unfortunately, with the bushfires that are happening uh, around Australia now, um, we're, we're seeing another call from people saying we need to look at issues like cultural burnings, land management that were practised by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people pre-colonisation that meant that we won't suffer as much in these devastating, you know, natural disasters as, as we currently do. We've got to bite the bullet and understand that, understand the impacts of climate change. And uh, a lot of that's got to be driven by, by many of our old people. There's many on board, you know, many on board for reconciliation. Uh, we just need to expand that out for others to have a bit more understanding, a bit more empathy. As Australia's Race Discrimination Commissioner back in the 2000s, he's seen what empathy and understanding means across our community. As we wrap up our chat, Tom even had a bit of theory about public celebration and openness to diversity. We are a multicultural society and, you know, we've got to understand that, we've got to live with it, we've got to work with it and we should respect all cultures, uh, all religions and all peoples, and, and we'll only do that, and that'll make us be able to achieve a future that's going to be very inclusive of everybody. And you look at the, the statistics on the number of intercultural marriages. Um, you know, we are multicultural, and as the, the Race Discrimination Commissioner for, for five years, back in the, the 2000s, we saw some atrocious behaviour by governments and the l- lack of recognition. We need to now move further on that one, and celebrate, as we do in Canberra. You know, Canberra, we celebrate two big things, I reckon. One is that we have a public holiday to celebrate reconciliation, and we have our multicultural festival that is phenomenally supported by the population. And that's why we had a a 60% vote yes in the referendum. So what comes next for a lifelong changemaker like Professor Tom Calmer? I'll still do all the things that I do. I do a lot of work um, in in early years education and uh, through the Australian Literacy and Numeracy Foundation, you know, with the philanthropic approach to addressing, you know, engagement of not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but other people who who are low socioeconomic or refugees, migrants. Uh, we run a quite a number of programs like um, breakfast libraries, books in homes, you know, these sort of programs, programs that, that use art therapy to engage with, with kids from a refugee background and also an Indigenous background where people can feel really comfortable in, in understanding and expressing their stories through a non-threatening environment like art and then start to work on language development. So, you know, they're all, all critically important. Another group I, I chair is the Living First Language Platform, which is now, by the end of this year, we would have recorded 20 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages in Australia. And these are languages being led by the community. And not only are they recording the languages, but they're able to teach the languages back to their community. But they're also used as an opportunity to then become familiar with your own, own language and, and then develop your English language capacity. And so we've seen some brilliant outcomes, you know, and I think the government is now looking at one of our success stories, working with the Gillen Primary School in Alice Springs, that when we started eight years ago, they were the bottom achieving primary school in Alice Springs, in NAPLAN. They're now the highest achieving. So, you know, where there is the 
the right sort of approach that's inclusive, that's done in a way that people can relate to, that's supportive, we will see an outcome. And that's not only for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but that's for all kids in the school. So um, there's plenty of good examples of good practice around the nation. You know, we've just got to be able to exercise some of those and language and culture are some of the, the most important for not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but people from minority ethnicities. Thank you for your time today, Tom. Thank you, appreciate it. And that's it for Seriously Social. Thanks for listening. I'm Ginger Gorman, and this is the last episode of Seriously Social for 2023 and the last of the whole podcast series. It brings to a close six wonderful seasons of understanding our world through the social sciences. I want to say a special farewell and thanks from me as host and from the whole podcast team, to all our guests over the years and to you listeners. Together we've explored some amazing ideas, research and insights. More than 120,000 listens later, we couldn't have done it without you. Seriously Social will remain available to download for a long time to come. So I do hope you revisit your favourites and find new favourites to share. This podcast is produced on Ngunnawal, Ngambri, Yagara and Turrbal land and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. Seriously Social is produced by Kim Lester, Shez Robinson, engineered by Mark Gargledonk, aka Baldy, and our executive producers are Bonnie Johnson and Claire McHugh. It is an initiative of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. To stay in touch for more developments as the Academy finds new ways to bring you stories and insights from the social sciences, visit socialsciences.org.au.